Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, it's Sean here from the DLD project. In this episode of the Talking DLD podcast, we're talking vocabulary with Anna Brannigan and Stephen Parsons, who are the creators of the highly regarded Word Aware program, which aims to teach vocabulary across the school day and embedded within the curriculum. Welcome, everyone. Today, we've got two um, amazing guests with us on the Talking DLD podcast. We've got Anna Brannigan and Stephen Parsons, both joining me from... I was going to say sunny summer mornings, hopefully in the UK. Um, what I might get you to do, if you don't mind, is could you tell us a little bit about your connection to DLD? Well, Stephen and I started working together uh, many, many years ago. Um, we started uh, not in our first part of our career. But we worked at uh, the Seabrake Language Unit and we worked with the, the most amazing team of people. And I think that's really where we both kind of cut our teeth with, with DLD and became really passionate about, about working with, with the children. They were an extraordinary bunch of children with really quite significant um, language needs. And we kind of worked with them for a long periods of time. And in fact, Stephen ended up working with them um, right through primary and met some of them more recently as they've kind of left school we've had kind of contact with these children quite incredible families um, from kind of all sorts of parts of the world with kind of really complex needs and worked with these with teachers which with such skill and passion and kind of really learned what made a difference are kind of enabled to work really intensely with these families about kind of making a change and, and making lives better for children I think that's kind of where the kind of the whole of our work came from was kind of practical wanting to work more effectively and working with that kind of family-centered approach which is really kind of core to our practice about what, what we want to do and then kind of that kind of I also work with um, the Youth Offending Service, um, so I work with really vulnerable teenagers and kind of seeing the impact on what DLD has with the with those sorts of young people. And actually, it's absolutely core to their ability to connect to society and be productive member of society. And the, the, and actually, if you can get that communication right between them and the people that are trying to support them, you can absolutely turn around lives. And I think that's kind of, it's really kind of gone from the kind of early years stuff, working lots in primary with um, lots of children with DLD and now kind of working with kind of those older teenagers. It's kind of giving you the kind of real breadth of understanding and and the challenges around around DLD. And, and all of that basically. <laughs> so um, I, I was, so Anna and I started working in, in Seabrights in Hackney in East London. So, and I stayed in Hackney for 20, 21 years. And, you know, and as Anna said, I followed some of those children through. I, I moved different into different language provisions. I was also manager of the service there. So, and, and so I kept contact or would bump into their families over the course of a number of years. And I bumped into one recently and I worked out that he was afterwards 29 and I knew him from when he was four. And so, you know, like, this remembered me, which was quite remarkable in itself. But that kind of connection with families and, and the special places, that, you know, the teamwork around uh, supporting children with uh, DLD was really engaging. And, and I think kind of really, you know, it pulls an emotional core because actually you can see what the importance of that really high quality work can really have on, on young lives. Um, and... So I stayed in Hackley and then uh, worked in other language resource provisions and, and then in the mainstream schools provision as well. So, um, but now I'm obviously involved with RADL, so raising awareness of DLD. 
very much Big Passion, as well as NAPLIC, which is the UK Association for Professionals who work with uh, speech language and communication needs, including DLD. So that's an organization between teachers and speech and language therapists. So very much at the core um, of, of the work is DLD. You know, I, I was really excited when you both agreed uh, to participate because I think that, um, A, you know, people who work with this particular population, you've got so many stories, as you've already just shared, and also there's so many opportunities to, I think, learn, um, particularly for those, I know a number of early career speech pathologists will email us and say, oh, I really found it beneficial to listen into our podcasts and, and learn something new. Um, and I think that also... You know, it's nice sometimes to hear the voice behind um, the writers, and I'll talk a little, little bit about that now. You're both obviously very well known for the Word Aware program. In fact, Stephen, I believe it's your, it's your Twitter handle, that your, your primary Twitter handle, is it not? Um, you it kind is, of use is. a few aliases <laughs> on social media. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the Word Aware program, just for those people who may not be familiar? Okay, so, so first of all, Anna and I never set off to write a big, you know, never set off to be in this position of all these books, etc. Is that we started off to really trying to solve practical issues. So our first book, um, it's language for thinking. So and that that really came from our joint work together with actually trying to provide some kind of structure for, to verbal reasoning and inference skills. Um, and and then we then moved on to vocabulary. So I was working in a language resource so in a main, within a mainstream school. So this is for children with uh, developmental language disorder in primary school. So and these children so aged five to eleven. And there were some changes in to the uh, numeracy curriculum was coming in. At the same time, we were trying to really um, ensure that our provision was more inclusive. So the children were spending. Huge, you know, 90% plus of the time in the mainstream classroom. So we're really trying to support them there. And um, so this numeracy curriculum is really about at a faster rate of learning. And obviously we know for children with DLD is that actually learning maths concepts is particularly challenging. So we're thinking, mm, how are we going to solve this? So that became my MSE project. So working with two children uh, who were then aged around eight um, and uh, you know, teaching them individual words as part of the maths curriculum, and and it was successful. Receptive vocabulary, you know, it's published. Um, I was very proud of it. They'd learned eighteen words, and then they retained them over the most of them over the summer holidays, which is quite remarkable. Um, so I was anyway. Then I came and talked to Anna, and she said, "What well, half an hour per word? How is that? How is that sustainable? What impact is that going to have on their long term?" On their long-term learning because actually they've got so other many needs you can't just be spending half an hour teaching every single word to these children i'm sorry being fired facetious here she didn't actually say it quite that bluntly <laughs> but but, <laughs> but but then also also anna got a new job which was in uh outside of hackney so for those who don't know hackney um is in inner london has you know at that point in particular was very well known for its kind of high levels of social deprivation and being pretty hard place to, to work. Mm -hmm. And I got a new job, which was outside of London, thinking it would be a doddle, but... It was incredibly challenging. Um, it was a it's, a, it's a really interesting area in, um, in Worcestershire, and it's a very high um, levels of deprivation, but unlike Hackney, not very multicultural. So it's a real kind of white underclass. And just the most challenging school that I'd 
ever seen or had contact with um and it and everybody had vocabulary learning needs you know it just it wasn't about doing some small work outside of the classroom that just wasn't going to cut it and there were enormous needs about everything so there was literacy numeracy needs language needs everything so actually we had to see what from Stephen's research could we actually put into the classroom to make a difference and what could be and the teachers were stressed the behavior was really challenging um social needs were really challenging it was just across the board everything um so actually what could we do to make a real difference to embed it to make it fun to make it doable and that's where the word of where approach really came from was working in that school so it was about actually what could we do that was very very practical and, and could make a difference and it was the one thing that really has sustained so I worked there for a number of years and then left and then actually coming back and it was something that had been kind of continued to be embedded and continued with some change of staff um, and I think and and one I mean I was always one of the things that kind of really inspired me early on was one of the teachers that left to get another job that's what she chose to demonstrate in her teaching in the classroom was teaching vocabulary using the word aware approach so that was very exciting for us and it and I think that, that was really what our philosophy was to really make it class-based embedded into everyday teaching and then working in partnership so really important to kind of that integrated work working with both teachers and also with families and finding ways of working with those families that find it hard to engage so what could be done so one of the things as part of Stephen's research was that he asked children to stick the words on on their fridge so they were they were families that didn't have a lot of resources or times to to do things um, but actually just having them aware on the fridge and when he asked the children if you knew those words they would say they did because they're on their fridge so we, they knew that that was really important but even in uh, the kind of reception year one classes so the kind of five six year olds that we were working with um, nothing was coming out book bags so there was no point putting a slip of paper and asking them to put it on on the fridge because it wasn't going to come out so Things like we kind of produced stickers. So we stuck stickers on children saying, so when they came out of school, so it was like, talk to me about this word. So actually they're having conversations with their parents. So actually finding ways of having simple conversations. So you automatically did it because you've seen the sticker, um, having that interaction with those words without it becoming a big job to do and finding time. So that's kind of really important part of, of what we were doing. And then we've kind of been developing the, the book further and it's really kind of kind of been more clear about how we're going with it so the kind of different layers of it so the, the first part which is such an important part is getting excited by words so playing with words enjoying words celebrating words um and and kind of getting every, getting the whole school buzzing about words which is really important then you've got the direct teaching element where we've got lots of multi-sensory learning so that children are learning words really efficiently with plenty of times for 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 hearing it in context and, and reviewing the word and then finally the word learning strategies so that we ca we can't teach children all the words so how can they learn words for themselves and that's that's kind of the the nutshell of what word aware is all about i have to ask while i'm thinking of it where did the title word aware come from i know this isn't one of my questions but i think it's uh do, 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 do you know what <laughs> i can't we, I, we spent a very very long time trying to come up with i really something that was alliterative so wait, like I said word something else mm. and I must have spent months and months and months brainstorming ideas and, and nothing was quite right and then I think I think it was just about I mean one of the principles of 
vocabulary teaching is about word consciousness, right? Just being just being aware of vocabulary is actually a really important, you know, precursor to vocabulary. So actually, that's that, that's where it came from. But it was a long time ago now. I can't really remember. Fifteen more years ago. So that's, <laughs> that's fair. There's there's something behind the reasoning. I'm sure. Even yeah. if it <laughs> even if it was a while ago, so when you've mentioned a few times and uh, vocabulary is a term, and I know we've got a really diverse range of listeners who who join us for these podcasts. Can you tell us what you mean by vocabulary, and in particular, what might vocabulary difficulties look or sound like? So, um, we. What's really important in terms of vocabulary that it's it, we're talking about both written vocabulary and spoken vocabulary. So a really good um, spoken to vocabulary to support your literacy skills, and because and that's where we kind of really come together and work with teachers. Because actually, often teachers are very focused on the kind of the what's coming out in the written vocabulary, and speech and language therapists are much more interested in spoken vocabulary. And actually, children need both those things. They they need the combination to be to have a really kind of powerful strong vocabulary and I think sometimes kind of word finding difficulties get the headlined but actually often it's those receptive language difficulties that kind of have the other kind of lots of children struggle with or don't have enough words to really be be effective in their communication both the written and the spoken and actually really important that we kind of like that we're kind of giving that that kind of breadth and depth of understanding of those those vocabulary and there are lots of, of children out there just that that don't have quite enough words um, to, to do what they want to do and they kind of you can sometimes see it when they overuse generic words or they're stuck on really simple words you know children you know and I see that with the older teenagers where they kind of they have a basic range of emotion words but actually don't have enough words to talk about the subtleties of their emotions so they've got happy and sad and angry and all of those the kind of very basic words but actually they don't have the range that's really kind of makes makes the difference in terms of being able to talk about their own emotions and express it and actually I mean there's lots of those I mean that's just one example of words with lots and lots of words that that children need and we also see it in in children who kind of really struggling to access the curriculum so they don't have enough words to really understand the um the the breadth of what has happening in the classroom and we really see that when children hit secondary school so they kind of survive enough when they're in primary and then they hit secondary and you and you see those children that are struggling with some of those literacy texts that they're just the difference between their social language their social vocabulary and their their, their ability to access the curriculum is just such a big gap and, it, and it's and it, it just makes children disengage and then you see the kind of resultant kind of difficulties accessing school, the kind of social isolation, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, and that's it's interesting because part when we work with teachers and speech and language therapists, we ask we ask the people we work with what happens if you don't if the children don't have the words that they need, what happens then? And the the biggest thing that we get back from everybody, both teachers and speech speech and language therapists, is social isolation. So if you don't have the words you need, the frustrations, the difficulty making friends, the difficulty resolving problems, and then of course there is the academic access. And both of those things are, are equally important. We want our children to be able to have a good social interaction um, with the people around them, but also kind of academically successful. 
I think we all agree that difficulties with vocabulary will significantly impact on a child's learning at school. What can we do uh, to support their vocabulary development, particularly for children with DLD? But what, what evidence supports some of the approaches that you might recommend? I have to say, first of all, it's lots. <laughs> there's lots. There's lots and lots to do. And I guess one of, because one of the biggest issues is, is just the sheer number of words. You know, there's a lot of words. And that, that's why one of the issues is with doing small, short-term interventions is that you can't really teach enough words to have an impact. So, so we need to be thinking, you know, whole school. That's one of the, why we're taking this whole school approach, actually, because if you get everyone engaged and make it a school-wide approach year on year on year on year, you can support a wide range of learners. But thinking back to, I guess, some of the things that I started with. So first of all, you know, uh, so I've been a speech-language therapist for 30 odd years and, you know, it's started by teaching functional vocabulary. So what words do the children need to know, Okay. And what happens in that is it's very hard to sustain because you're the only one working, you might be working with a family, but actually it's hard to engage with school because of these functional words that children, you know, what the next step of words they need to know, it doesn't fit anywhere within the curriculum. So repetition is really hard to achieve in a session um, and they don't generalize. So that, that's an issue. Then I started thinking about, okay, so we need to think more about the curriculum. So I would literally be chasing teachers down the corridors for lists of words and I do remember seeing you know like teachers duck into a room to avoid me okay oh there, there, there he comes again looking for those lists of words that I don't have and then when I did find them I would get lists of words of thinking there is absolutely no way that this child is going to access these levels of words right so that's where this kind of coming back to a joint approach really is you know, in the curriculum, because we take a curriculum-based approach, it's in context, okay? So therefore, if we teach the words in the classroom, they're going to generalize immediately to the environment which they're being used in. Um, repetition is kind of taken because actually, if you build it into the process, then words are going to come up lots and lots of times um, as well, okay? As well as obviously having an impact um, in, in the classroom. So what we really did with this with Word Aware is take lots of the approaches which work with children with DLD and put them in the classroom. Okay, so it's really things like, you know, phonological awareness, so clapping out syllables, saying the word out loud, um, th simple definitions, using visuals, lots of repetition. Okay, all of these things are things that we recognize with how we teach children with DLD, but we get the teach to do them with the whole class. Okay, because it's beneficial to so many other children as well. So with in terms of research for word aware, though there hasn't actually been a study done on, on word aware in its entirety, which if anyone would like to give us some money, we're quite happy to do or be involved with. <laughs> um, it, it's expensive and difficult is part, mm -hmm. is part of one absolutely. of the issues, right? Yeah, right? absolutely. So, so, but what we've done is taken, you know, lots of other people's work and approaches and so built on that as well. So, so our great friend, the late Pip Sajun, um, you know, has, has some work that she, uh, has done work in terms of pre-teaching vocabulary, and that's on the NAPLIC website, naplic.org.uk, and then go to the PTV, pre-teaching vocabulary uh, tab. Mm -hmm. um, and so she uses a lot of the same approaches, and, and others others have as well, and obviously the research that I did my, with my uh, master's as well. So we're taking those approaches. Um, 
And then we've had some specific um, research done. So Ros Herman and Charles Hume and colleagues uh, did a study um, which was looking at uh, teaching reception children reading skills using a joint phonics and vocabulary approach. And they used a word aware um, approach. Now, the study was quite difficult in many ways because of the word selection part from our perspective, because the words had to not only be at the right level, but they also had to conform to phonological patterns because they were part of the reading scheme, it was very difficult, but actually it had a positive impact. So that was uh, good to see on, 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 on their reading as well as on um, vocabulary. Um, another study was done by uh, Moran and Moyer in Scotland, looking at educa uh, their educational psychologists, and they were looking at early years practitioners and, um, and again, vocabulary teaching using direct teaching had an approach, uh, had an impact. But as Anna said earlier, Word aware is these three elements. Okay, so it's, it's to get excited. It's the whole uh, linguistic environment. Okay, vocabulary learning environment is number one. Number two is about the direct teaching element, and number three is the independent word learning strategies. So the only part which has actually been investigated in, at all is the direct teaching element. But actually, we're advocating that all these all three of these things and that's you know that's what other researchers are saying as well as actually it's all these things but actually it needs to be pulled together in some kind of more uh, holistic uh, overview what just being slightly controversial for a minute and i guess one of, the, one of the current evidence base is about for vocabulary for children with dld is about withdrawal from classrooms and teaching them words and i guess my misgivings about that is they're being taken out of the classroom and actually what we don't measure is what's the negative impact on what they're missing out on. So the study Absolutely. that I did was on a, yeah. the study that I did was on a withdrawal, taking children out of class into it and, to, and, and teaching them math vocabulary, but they were missing literacy, right? <laughs> okay, so you're thinking like, oh, you know, uh, so having, I could have been having a negative impact on their literacy skills in whilst trying to teach them vocabulary, which is a you know a slightly tricky situation to be in. So. Well, I think what you know we'd, we'd like to see is more research on the a holistic, you know, approach in the classroom approaches, which are more expensive, you know, are harder to do. So, um, you know, but that's something we need to do before we're making decisions about we're using an evidence-based approach. We need to be looking at the whole picture a little bit wider. And I think that there's a key point there about evidence-informed and evidence-based, and there's evidence that we can draw upon. Um, to inform the work that we do. And sometimes these programs, as you said, it's very expensive to do, it's expensive to do research. Um, but a couple of things you said, Stephen, really resonated with me. I have vivid, I can see myself running down teachers in corridors for word lists. Um, we've, you know, I can see myself having done that. And, you know, the work I'm currently doing private practice is, you know, emailing and going, what units are you covering in this within the Australian curriculum? Uh, we're able to see, you know, what content should be covered across the school year, but I don't necessarily know if, but, and when it's going to happen. So how do you know? How can I draw on? And I, I always give the same example of, you know, earth. We talk about earthquakes or you know, water cycles or something in science, but they might touch on it in the first lesson and then they never come back to the vocabulary. Um, and then it's kind of assumed knowledge. So my little ones or not so little ones tend to struggle. Um, and you're right with your point around uh, that for intervention, there's always a cost, whether it's time and having a negative impact on some other area or uh, looking at, you know, 
cost for families to travel, participate, attend, whatever it might be. So I think that as clinicians, we try to make sure that there's a cost, some sort of cost benefit analysis. But I really like what you're proposing that if we can, we'd call it a push in service. I'm not sure if that's the same terminology in the UK, but if it's sort of um, embedded and that we're working alongside our education colleagues, then we can achieve some wonderful things. Absolutely. So it sounds like what you've described would be really helpful for children who don't have DLD as well. Why does vocabulary development and the supports you're suggesting help everybody? Well, it's really about helping everybody to access the curriculum. And it's that kind of, so the kind of the, the all the nitty gritty parts of the curriculum, emotional literacy, reading comprehension. I mean, Stephen's talked quite a bit about maths vocabulary and there's, you know, very clear evidence that children um, need that need that vocabulary in order to, to, to do well in maths. And it, and really what we're trying to do is, is support those children with the least vocabulary. You're typically developing children and really stretching students with the biggest vocabularies because every we know that the vocabulary really affects children's ability to access and do well at school. So it's, it is the kind of looking at supporting everybody that makes a difference. And, and there are an awful lot of children out there who have vocabulary learning needs that will never get onto anybody's caseload or anybody who's gonna work very specifically with them. But they're the, the children that are just not doing so well with their vocabulary and therefore finding it harder to access the curriculum. And actually we just need to really support those children. So they're the ones that, that don't need to necessarily be seen by any sort of specialist, but actually they have those needs and they, they, those needs need to be met within the classroom. <clears throat> and that's what we're really looking at doing is, is trying to support all those children. I mean, we get, Anna and I do training at different places around the UK and, and, you know, the schools, I guess, which are most engaged with vocabulary, who see a need. Actually, I mean, it's quite, a, it's quite a wide range, actually, but the ones who really think, oh, this is really, really what we need, you know, have... have it, it, are in, tend to be in areas of social deprivation. Okay, so they have, you know, so they have lots of children who they identify as having vocabulary learning needs. These children are never going to be on anyone's caseload, right? It's not appropriate for them to be on anyone's caseload, but they actually, but the schools can see that the, the lack of vocabulary is having an impact. Um, potentially, some of them have, you know, uh, I mean, uh, no, as I was say, some of them have English additional language learners, but, but. But that's often a red herring, I think, isn't it? Because often, you know, children with English additional language can do very well, but they might they might need a little bit extra support at, mm -hmm. at the start of their education in particular. Um, but one of the things I think that this is a terminology, the UK terminology, is universal targeted and specialist provision. Yeah. So tier one, tier two, tier three. Not in terms of vocabulary. Mm. No, this is specifically yeah. just in general provision. Yeah, yeah. So we have ho whole. Is it, is it the same sort yeah. of thing? The whole class, yep. whole school is 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 the is universal targeted mm. is children with some level of needs who need a little bit extra support and then specialists. And I and I guess working with schools that are actually really there'll be children with voc obviously vocabulary learning needs at all three levels and, and supporting them to, to really develop that whole kind of spectrum of, of support as well, for whatever reason. Because you know, there'll be children who have vocabulary needs for <laughs> reasons we don't really know or never will know but actually they need support immediately so actually really supporting them at that whole school level you know we can actually see what intervention they may need at a later point but actually starting with quality first provision at the whole school level absolutely i think that you've picked up on some really key points that i was hoping we'd come to which is the fact that some children are never going to qualify for at least funded 
um, support. Some parents may be in the fortunate position or the privileged position to be able to pay for um, additional support. But then, at least in Australia at the moment, accessing speech pathology in a timely manner is something that's really challenging, even in a fee-for-service model. Um, so if anybody's listening and thinking about becoming a speech pathologist, we desperately need you, um, or speech and language therapists, as you guys would say. Um, and I think that having that, so that, that is such a clear crossover, I think, within the realm of speech pathologists from a, from a communication perspective, but also the work that teachers would be looking at embedding in their work. So I'd love to hear more about, I said earlier, I think that speech pathologists and teachers are a match made in heaven. How could speech pathologists and teachers work together to build vocabulary within a classroom setting? I think one of the things to think about is that speech language therapists, speech pathologists yep. need to see the curriculum as a friend. Mm. I think quite often, you know, the school curriculum, I think quite often, often we're a bit scared of it. Um, it's a teacher responsibility, but actually we need to learn more about it and see it because particularly in terms of vocabulary, to access the curriculum, you need a lot of vocabulary. For our students with DLD, that's a big barrier. Um, but also the curriculum is full of vocabulary. So using it as a source um, also helps with the incremental steps with vocabulary that beyond the very basics that would otherwise be taught in traditional speech and language therapy. And then what we need to do is, is, is collaborate with, you know, with, with teachers and the speech and language therapists, speech pathologists taking their understanding of language and then teachers taking their understanding of curriculum and, and other aspects of learning and bring that together and so speech language therapists can be supporting teachers to become more inclusive in their vocabulary teaching so you know teachers understand that vocabulary teaching is important okay i don't think there's any teachers who don't understand that right but what they don't know is how to support the children who have some level of need yeah, so a lot of the teaching would involve around you know selecting vocabulary from a text or from, from the curriculum and then just talking about it. But actually we know for lots of children, that's not enough. So really bringing in that specialist skills and speech pathologists can really support teachers teaching. But we've got to come up with approaches which are time efficient. I've done, you know, been involved in different collaborative um, projects where there's just, it just takes too long, right? A lot of talking, a lot of great work comes of it, but it takes a long time so really got to come up with ways which are time efficient because you know teachers you know have <laughs> very fixed times on their timetable they have to be in the classroom and they don't have a lot of time outside of that so uh, we need to make that really efficient for them as well the hardest thing I think is coming up with a common view is that quite often we're in different systems in the UK speech and language therapists are employed primarily in the health sector with the NHS um, although there's some kind of a number of other providers as well but that's the kind of bulk of uh, speech and language therapists um you know obviously teachers are in education and we talk different languages we see children from different perspectives okay we've got to really develop a common view together um and so having having a way to do that is really important um and i think one of the key things and a hard selling point sometimes because particularly the view of speech and language therapists as coming from a special educational needs perspective is often that, oh, you're here to support the children who have autism or to support the children who have really severe language needs. But actually, we've got to be thinking about developing these, these holistic systems of support as well. And that's actually where a big role for speech and language therapists in schools is really to support schools, to support those um, holistic systems. So that universal target and specialist you were talking about a little bit earlier. 
I like your point, Stephen, around, um, you know, the curriculum is our friend. I think that people hear curriculum and immediately shut down as this big beast. And it's such, uh, at least um, in my circles, uh, curriculum can be a controversial topic and it can be politicised and people can have views on things like that. But I always think of it as just a framework. It's something that I can actually use to hinge my work as a clinician off. Uh, and it, you're right, it really is that coming together of the teacher and the speech pathologists. I will frequently talk about in you know settings, I, I detest the specialist not specialists within your framing, but just that expert model of speech pathology coming in. Um, we're often seen as more health and, you know, coming together in education. I actually, you know, could be slightly controversial and suggest that maybe, you know, education is actually almost like a specialist area for speech pathologists. It requires time and training and, you know, consideration and thought, and you don't just sort of flit in and out. Uh, it's something you really do get your teeth into. Uh, and I always have argued that if you're coming in as the expert model, you know, you're giving information that we've got these teaching colleagues that are phenomenal. Let's listen to what they have to say. So it was always a one for one in my mind. You know, if the speech pathologist was giving a PD on something, they had to listen to a PD on curriculum or classroom management or learning strategies so that it was truly a collaborative learning environment. I think the other key stakeholder here are families. They play such an important role in supporting their child. And I always like to make sure that often parents persist through the podcast just to get to this, this point, which is there, is there anything that they can do to support vocabulary use and understanding within the home environment? I think families are absolutely fundamental to our approach. We've always kind of seen them as, a, as really key because they have those opportunities to reinforce, to have fun with words, to do all of those kind of things with a very high adult-to-child ratio. Um, although it's really important to really engage them in ways that can use dead time. So we've really looked at opportunities of things, you know, particularly in our early years, um, approach with thinking about actually what could what could parents do from picking up their child between there and the gate or by the time they get home so can they just on the way home look for things that are narrow or empty or any of those kind of words because actually they, they really lend themselves to those easy conversations can you play a word game you know when, when parents are still at the stage when they're picking up children from school you know what can you do on the bus in the car walking home actually can you play a word game you know it's the sort of thing that actually you're not trying to do other things it's not trying to fit it in but what can we do to make it easy for families um, to to engage with this without it feeling too challenging we're not stretching their literacy skills too far that actually it's just something fun that they can do with their kids I have that opportunity to talk about a word tell their kid a bit more about that word um, and if they don't know the word themselves look it up together I mean the, the magic nowadays is that you know a while ago um, lots of families didn't have dictionaries now everybody carries one around in their back pocket you know they've got that you know they're using their mobile phone to look stuff up and actually that's a skill that children really need to have and it's just those little things that that 
that families can do. Um, and the other thing that we're really passionate about is really encouraging families to work on any of the school vocabulary that they would do in English in the school to actually work on those words and talk about those words in the family's home language. So they get really strong understanding of what that word is and lots of great connections that were then going to really support that, that learning of the word in English when they're in school. So kind of really making sure that that's kind of really embedded. And I think that sometimes that's, that's, for some teachers that I've worked with, that's been quite a surprise that actually that that would really work and make a difference. And actually, we've really seen that actually, if it's really got that good grounding at home, so they're hearing those words in really good sentences, then we're kind of really getting building a strong language base, which is going to make that difference. And then the key message for all of all of the work that needs to be sent home and, and also in school that it needs to be fun that you know we learn best when we're enjoying it and actually vocabulary really lends itself to that it's kind of there's lots of things that you can do that are that are really enjoyable I, was say. I think particularly for children with DLD is that you know language learning can be hard work actually so they need more energy you know more more fun really to really make you know, keep that to keep that ball rolling in terms of keeping those skills going so actually make is it is, is, is i think that's probably the key message of families is to, if it's not if child's not having fun don't do it all right come up with some other game that is fun come do something else and you know that's there's lots of things online but also you know invent your own games as well find out what your child likes i'm thinking back to some very early days of um cutting out magazines and taking pictures on walks <laughs> and all sorts of stuff, which maybe probably wasn't very fun. So I, I like the idea of um, what the games that you're looking, you know, at on your way home and things that you're looking for within your own environment, because it really is their own context. I had um, the experience of taking my children overseas a couple of years ago. And one of the biggest changes in vocabulary I actually saw was experiential changes by traveling to another country. And all of a sudden, these children who were very, you know, probably lived in a little bit of a protected bubble, were seeing things and eating things and doing things that they hadn't done before. And they carried over all of this richness back to their day-to-day -day their day-to-day -day lives. So it's actually a lot of that experience that um, that families bring, isn't it, to the the language learning or vocabulary learning process? We are greater than the sum of our parts. The more that we can work with teachers, with families, the better the work is. And that's, that's really what's going to make a difference. And particularly, I love that you brought up our multilingual families. Um, you know, we hadn't gotten to that point. And I'm glad again that we did because so often I'm, I'm hopelessly monolingual. I do not speak a word of any other language. And so I cannot, you know, I need to rely on my families in order to um, make that language accessible and talking about how they can, you know, use the, those words in their own language and that I'd call robustness and, you know, that they support each other as we um, strengthen their English maybe as a second language or if they've got DLD, their development in both languages. Absolutely. It can be something, you know, as really simple as, as just, so we have different kind of little worksheets that people can do. So one of the things is for monolingual families, you send home words and then they just come back with some definitions. And then for the multilingual families, all, all that they need to do is translate the words. So then helping them make that connection between the words they're learning in school and the, the words in their own, their own language. And just as kind of as simple as kind of a validating the different languages can make a real difference and I think that constant reminder that it is okay you know there still seems to be this misnomer floating around that you know if we're learning one language try and stick in to that language and learn it really well but you know we know so much more than we did at least when I graduated from uni that you know we want to encourage that 
cultural connectiveness in language as well. So I'm conscious that we're slowly drawing to a close. I'd love to hear both of your opinions on my next question, which is what do you hope to see in the future for DLD in the UK and around the world? I think, Stephen, I might know some of your answers to this one, Um, but it might be... (laughs) It might be in research, clinical work, or service delivery. What are, what are your hopes for the future? I think I'm going to start this first. Otherwise, okay, Stevie's okay. going to say everything. Go for it, Anna, <laughs> please. <laughs> I think that the number one thing um, if, for both of us, really, is is actually people to need to know what it is. Mm. You know, it, it's, it's, I mean, people have talked a lot about the kind of taxi driver test, but it is like, it's not known it's you know it's obviously it's a fairly new term but but obviously that you know we've known about um language delays and disorders for for many many years and actually the awareness of it is still really really low and we need to know how how what a serious condition it is and I think that's that's the kind of the kind of core of it and and I and I'm really passionate as well that I think and and I, I still think within even with specialist communities that um in terms of speech and language therapists that we're not aware enough that actually lots of the parents of the children that we're working with are likely to have difficulties and we're not enabling them to access as effectively as we could that we need to be really thinking actually can they understand what we're writing and what we're saying to them as well and we need to really look at that very carefully right that's my bit got in there quick Stephen I guess my my big hope (laughs) It is that we have, you know, that people with DLD and their families are empowered, that actually they, you know, first of all, they know, they've got to know they've got DLD. So that, I guess Anna's point about general awareness is important. But then actually there are professionals who are skilled, and I guess in great numbers, to be able to diagnose DLD. So that actually people know they've got DLD, then actually they can go out and educate themselves. They can then be lobbying, you know, because actually there's, in the UK, if we take out the 7.6% uh, figure of DOD and extrapolate that to how many children and young people there are in the UK, there are 1 million children and young people under 18 with DOD in the UK and only a very small percentage know they have the condition. So if every child and young person with DOD knew they had DOD, they would be an absolutely unstoppable force. We would not be having these conversations about awareness. We would not be having... Um, you know about access to provision we would not be having discussions about research because there would just be so many of them they would be like you know there would be such a big lobbying force that MPs would have to take and have to take uh, notice of them so that's that's my long 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 term um, aim you know hope but I guess in in the current time it's really starting with what is the role the key role that professionals have and that has to be diagnosis right so really Every speech and language therapist, even if your specialism in something else, has to know about DLD. So therefore, when they see, oh, they don't fall into my criteria for speech sound disorder, they might have DLD instead. Or they're not autistic, they might have DLD, right? You've got to be able to recognise this. So, um, yeah, I think I could probably spend the rest of the podcast talking about that. Good. We'll make another time. <laughs> but, but your point is really valid. And I, I, I mean, we run diagnosing DLD with confidence training at the DLD project. And the reason is, A, people don't feel confident. And one of the big things I say is it is one, it is one of the most prevalent childhood conditions. Um, if you hear hooves, 
think horses, not zebras or even unicorns. Like if you hear that they've got difficulties communicating, you know, if you're just going probability wise, it's a fairly strong probability that DLD might be something to consider. Um, and one of the other issues I, I talk about this again is that, you know, DLD can be diagnosed by one health professional. Uh, so other health professionals may not know to consider it because they don't usually diagnose it. So we've got some innate difficulties in the diagnostic system, but mm-hmm. I know we're all working on it. <laughs> we'll get there eventually one day. One day, one day. <laughs> one day. That's and what I, actually really po- I think really positive is starting to happen. And I guess mm. Anna touched on this already, is that adults with DLD, mm. is that actually there's, you know, people are starting to, adults are starting to say, I think I've got DLD. And, you know, that's going to increase. So we really have to start building services for adults with DLD as well. You know, that, that's, that's, we've still got a long way to go in that area. Okay. We're really drawing to a close now. So I do have one more question for you. So at the DLD project, we're really trying to focus in on our self-care and finding time to breathe in our busy day. It's one of our values. What do you both do to look after yourselves? So for me, my, my thing is walking and I, and I, because I used to walk a lot when I was working uh, in a speech therapy service. I used to walk a lot to work and as part of the day. And then I started walking more from home. But so I guess part of the lockdown thing is that walking mm. every single day for about an hour or so um, has really made a difference to me. And then just sitting in the garden <laughs> I, where I am uh, in the countryside here. Um, and you can you know, sit and watch the birds or something like that. Or, or actually like weeding. Don't don't say mm. that too loudly, but I, I actually don't like... like... <laughs> I, I like I like weeding my own garden. Okay, not anyone else's. <laughs> uh, and yes, um, just just my own garden. I, I you know like little, I guess it's very caring and nurturing, and it's in its own kind of bizarre way. It's also mindless. So, mm-hmm. um, and I think just doing something that you really like, right, gives you a lot of energy. So actually, the things that might seem like work don't seem like work. Is 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 is, is an important thing for me as well. Wonderful, Anna. How about you? So I try and do, I don't know if I find it fun, but I definitely feel better for it. I try and do kind of short, short workouts and Pilates most days of the working week, which um, I definitely feel better for. Um, And then similarly, I think we're getting to this age where actually I suddenly have enjoyed. (laughs) Thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) I've always loved gardens, but I've never liked the actual gardening part actually suddenly I think lockdown has really helped with that I've actually got into the idea that it's actually quite nice to do mm-hmm. little bits here and there so yeah and no, I'm with Stephen not I don't know if weeding is great fun but um I do I have enjoyed being in my garden and then once we can get back to it but it'll be one of the very last things to come is I love to dance and social dancing with partners and and that's that I love love that and I'm looking forward to at some stage being able to go to a dance again Mm, one day soon hopefully Anna one day yeah maybe (laughs) Mm, yes oh they all sound like wonderful you know strategies particularly during stressful and busy times to have so what we might do now is just recap on what we've covered today what would be the key point you really want our listeners to take away from out from the chat that we've had Uh, oh gosh um I guess probably the key the key thing is, is really about collaboration, I think, mm. is that working together. So, you know, speech language therapists, teachers and families really all working together is really fundamental for vocabulary because it's, it's you know, children don't learn words from one person. Right. <laughs> they learn them from everybody. So actually, we've got to we've got to be 
working together. Um, and that's uh, probably the number one thing. Um, and then I think if we're looking at, because it has to be sustainable over a long term. So we've really got to be also thinking about practical things that are doable, that like not a short term intervention, which is very time focused and really like that, that has its place, but actually to really make a difference of vocabulary, it has to be like every day throughout life really. So really trying to build in things which are uh, worth learning opportunities. I mean, Stephen touched on there about kind of working together with speech and language therapists, teachers and parents. But it, and so the kind of really key message of kind of speech and language therapists need to be working in the classroom with teachers, that actually that's that's where we're going to make the most difference. And then fundamental to everything, it all needs to be fun. We really need to make this a fun process for everybody so that it isn't it isn't tiresome for anybody. So the teachers need to be enjoying it. You know, and actually, you know, when you're in a classroom and the kids are liking what you do, it's the best feeling. Um, I mean, I just love that when actually, when I walk into a classroom and the kids are excited to see me because I'm going to do something good. And that's, that's the best feeling. You've got to find those moments, don't you? But even when I'm, I mean, at the moment when I'm going into classrooms, I'm covered head to foot in plastic and I still get those kids getting excited, which is lovely. Once they've got over the fact they think I'm not going to, when you first walk in, they think you're going to give them an injection. Um, but, oh, um, yeah, we don't want to do that. No, but it is amazing how much they cope with you. Kind of, I've got aprons and gloves and visors and masks and all sorts of things, but um, it's a, it's it's so lovely to be part of that process of of children responding to the work that we do well thank you both so much for agreeing to be our guests on the talking dld podcast i'm really pleasantly surprised this is this is our first time having two two presenters and i couldn't possibly have picked between the two of you um and i think that it's worked fabulously well so thank you cheers thank you sure Thank you, Stephen, Anna and Sean for this much needed discussion on the impacts vocabulary has on learning, particularly for students with DLD. If you'd like to delve further into this really important topic, you can head to our blog for links to Stephen and Anna's books that are available for purchase right now. Uh, the DLD project is ramping up for a big six months. It's very exciting. Uh, we have new training for educators launching plus on-demand learning coming very soon. So do keep following our socials and thedldproject.com for announcements. And you know what's even better? You could consider joining our e-newsletter mailing list on our website to get the latest news direct to your inbox. Thank you so much for joining us. We couldn't do what we do without you.